Well, please turn with me in God's Word now to the book of Exodus and chapter 20 and verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 7, on page 73 of the Church Bible. We're continuing to work through the Ten Commandments, and as we've been thinking about already, we come this morning to the third commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It was Juliet in Romeo and Juliet who asked the question, what's in a name? And the point that she was making was, surely Romeo's name shouldn't matter. The name is meaningless. It's just a collection of sounds. And she goes on to say, that which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell as sweet. Well, the third commandment teaches that when we come to God's name, it is very very far from being meaningless. In the Bible, the name of God stands for all He is. Everything that He has revealed about Himself is contained in His name. All His names, all His titles, all His being, all His perfections and attributes, all of these things are summed up and represented by the Lord's name. And so we are to be extremely careful whenever we use God's name. Anytime we take it on our lips, as we thought about with the children, we are handling something that is infinitely valuable. We don't just fling it around carelessly. We handle it, we treat it gently and delicately, with the utmost care, with the deepest reverence and respect. The commandment literally says, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to emptiness. We're not to use God's name, in other words, in an empty, meaningless, vain, thoughtless way. Because when we do that, we're saying that that's what we think of God. The name of God, you remember, represents all that God is, all that He has revealed about Himself. And so when we treat His name with contempt, when we treat His name thoughtlessly, we are treating Him with contempt. So we want to ask three questions about this commandment this morning. We'll spend most of the time on the first. How do we take God's name in vain? How do we take God's name in vain? Let me suggest three ways that we do this. The first is by swearing. By swearing. When we use God's name as a swear word, don't think that that is going to be uh, true for 
any of us here this morning, but this is certainly a very common way that people take God's name in vain. They use it as a swear word. And perhaps that's what many people think of first, or perhaps that's all they think of when they think of taking God's name in vain. And I would want to say that this is not the most serious way of misusing God's name, but it is certainly one of the most common. The ninth edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, under the entry for Jesus, says this, an exclamation of surprise, dismay, etc. And then, in brackets, the name of the founder of the Christian religion, who died in about A.D. 30. That's what the Oxford English Dictionary says about Jesus. First and foremost, the word Jesus is an exclamation of surprise, dismay, etc. And only secondarily, the name of the founder of the Christian religion. And of course, the Oxford English Dictionary there is reflecting normal usage. The name of Jesus in our world has become before anything else, nothing better than a common swear word. And there are people, perhaps you know them, perhaps you work alongside them, perhaps you live in the same house as them, and they seem to use the name of the Lord as nothing more than a punctuation mark in a sentence. It's just verbal filler. And you challenge them about it, and they hardly realize that they're even doing it. And you try to explain that this is blasphemy, that this is deeply offensive, that this is a transgression of one of the Ten Commandments, and they say, I'm not blaspheming. It, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't mean anything by it. And the commandment says, that's exactly the point. That's exactly why it's wrong. You're using it in a vain, empty, meaningless, thoughtless way. You're speaking about the most glorious being in the universe. You're speaking about your God, your Creator, the King of kings, the one who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in His majesty. You're speaking about the one who is only ever to be spoken about with the profoundest reverence. And yet that matchless name, the name of God, in so many people's lips has become nothing more than an exclamation of surprise, dismay, etc. Swearing. Now, of course, if that was all that this commandment means, then we today could go away feeling quite pleased with ourselves, quite proud of ourselves, quite smug even. But in fact, as we'll see, it is more likely to be believers rather than non-believers who break this commandment. It's religious people who are most in danger here. How do we take God's name in vain? We do it by swearing. Secondly, we do it by mocking God. Mocking God. 
The word for blasphemy, or one of the words for blasphemy in the Old Testament, is to despise, to insult, to look down on with contempt. And people take the Lord's name in vain. They misuse God's name when they make the Lord of the universe the butt of their jokes and their scoffing, when they show contempt for him. And as Christians, we must have absolutely nothing at all to do with it. We should turn off our televisions and our radios. We should walk out of the cinema as soon as someone starts making jokes at God's expense, as soon as someone starts mocking the Lord. There is something seriously defective, surely, when Christians are entertained by that kind of blasphemy, or when we, we can just let it pass, or when we pay it no heed, when, when it doesn't bother us. But more seriously, the church, we as Christians, we share the world's guilt for some of this mockery. Because too often Christians encourage the world to mock and to despise God. We help them. We give them ammunition. We provide them with fuel for their blasphemy. How do we do that? We do it by our inconsistent, hypocritical behavior. We give the world reason to mock God. We see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see it, for example, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14 where Nathan says to David, by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. By what you've done, by committing adultery with Bathsheba, by trying to cover it up in the shabby, shameful way that you did, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. You've made God a laughingstock. You've brought his name into dishonor. And Paul, uh, to the Romans in Romans 2.24, again quoting from the Old Testament, but applying it to the New Testament church, he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of the way that you, the professed people of God, are living, because of your attitudes, because of your priorities, because of the way you treat one another. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, and it's your fault. You bear responsibility for it. Of course, they will answer for the things that they say, but you bear some responsibility for it as well. And that's entirely possible for us as Christians to do. We can cause God's name to be blasphemed among unbelievers by our behavior, by our inconsistent lives. We can give a false impression of what God is like. We misrepresent him. We distort him. We twist and pervert his name by the way that we live. We're Christians. We bear the name of Christ. We are living advertisements to the world of what God is like. We're meant to be able to say to the world, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Listen to me. Watch how I treat people. And you will see what God is like. And the world looks at us, perhaps more often than not, and laughs and scoffs 
and shows contempt for God's name. A God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy. These Christians hate the sight of each other. They're ripping each other's eyes out. They can't get on with each other. Why would we believe in this God that they pretend is real, the true and living God, this God of grace and mercy? Listen to the way they talk about each other. Look at the way they treat people. Listen to how self-righteous they are, how arrogant, how hypocritical. I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. How do we take God's name in vain? Swearing, mocking, and then thirdly, in careless worship. In careless worship. We take God's name in vain. We use it in an empty way in careless worship. Now we certainly see this in churches where worship is flippant and irreverent, where there is absolutely no sense of drawing near to a God who is a consuming fire with reverence and awe, as Hebrews 12 calls us to do. There's no sense at all of the transcendence and the blazing holiness and righteousness of God. God's name is used in many worship services in an empty and thoughtless way, in the constant repetition of childish songs over and over again. That is lifting up God's name to emptiness. Our culture doesn't like formality. It doesn't like reverence. It doesn't like formality. It doesn't do solemnity. Many churches, I think, pride themselves on this. They, they see it as a mark of spirituality. It just shows how close they are to God, that they have this relaxed, laid-back, easy-going approach to God. Where in the Bible does that kind of thinking come from? The third commandment impresses upon us, just as the first two do, that the worship of God, the taking of God's name upon our lips, is not something that is to be laid back and casual. We're not to use God's name in a careless, thoughtless, frivolous way. But we need to remember, don't we, what we tell our children often, that when you point the finger at someone, there are three fingers pointing back at you. And we can break this commandment as Reformed Presbyterians. And we probably do break this commandment every single week in this very room as we sing unaccompanied psalms and pray and read the Scriptures. Because it's in our morning and evening Sabbath services that we probably use God's name more than at any other time in the week in the greatest concentration. We sang the name of God 12 times today in the two psalms that we have sung already. And we're going to sing it more in our final psalm. We use the name of God as we approach him in prayer. But are we lifting up God's name in an empty, 
meaningless and thoughtless way. I think that this is one of the great sins of Christian people. Are we really thinking about what we're singing, about what we're praying, about what we're hearing? Can you think of one thing that we praised God for in our opening psalm? There were many things, but can you think of one thing? What did we ask God for in our second psalm? In our opening prayer, what characteristics of God did we focus on? I'm not doing that to try to make you feel bad, just to make the point that we, we do this, don't we? We've been lifting up God's name this morning, but have we been doing it in an empty way? Far too often we go through the motions of worship. We sing the Psalms, we turn in the Bible, follow along in the readings, we stand through the prayers, we're here for the sermon, and then we go out. And we've done all the right things. The mechanics of our worship are unimpeachable. But are our hearts really engaged in what we've been doing? Have we been participating with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength? It's easy to, this is the great temptation for religious people. This was the temptation of the Pharisees. And they started off well they wanted to be holy. They wanted to please God. But over the years, it hardened. Their attitude hardened. And they became people who, who, who only cared about getting the outward appearance right. And they thought, as long as we have the outward appearance right, God will be pleased. Are we lifting up God's name in vain? You remember the words of Isaiah? to the people of his day, to the worshippers of his day. This is not to atheists who never darkened the door of the temple. This is to the worshippers. Isaiah 1.13, God says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Why were, their meaning, why were their offerings meaningless? How could they be meaningless? God had ordained them. God had explained their meaning. They weren't meaningless offerings, were they? They were full of meaning. They were rich in meaning. But as far as God is concerned, these offerings are empty. They're vain. They're meaningless because the people's hearts are not right. And so the Lord goes on and he says, Your incense is detestable to me. Incense that he had commanded that they should bring. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. I'm not going to look at you. I'm not going to hear you. He says, even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Isn't it terrifying to think that the Lord could say that of our worship services here? Isaiah 29, 13. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. Is that true of you? I know that it's certainly true of me. We sing of God's glory and God's majesty, but our thoughts are a million miles away. Think about anything except the words of the songs of praise and the God that we're worshiping. We're thinking about a TV program that we watched last night or a film or a football game. We're looking around and we're thinking about what people are wearing or who's here or who's not here. Why are they sitting there? Or we're thinking about nothing at all. Our minds are completely vacant, empty, meaningless worship. We sing about salvation from sin and from death and from hell, and yet we're completely unmoved. We could be singing about long division for all the difference that it would make to our emotions. We sing of deep, serious commitment to the Lord. We sing these words pledging our life and our soul to God's service. And yet we have no intention of doing anything about it. We go out and nothing changes. We, we, we don't mean what we say when we sing these words to the Lord. We sang the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Did you really think about that as you were singing those words? Did you mean it? Are you going to do something about it? Or will you have forgotten that you even sang these words to God before you get into the car this morning? Is, is this all just a little religious game, a little ritual that we play in the Lord's day, and it really has no connection at all with what we do and what we are outside these walls? We need to be so careful, don't we, in prayer when we say the words, in Jesus' name, the way we should finish our prayers. We should say, in Jesus' name, we ask these things, or for Jesus' sake, we ask these things. But think about what you're saying when you say those words. It's not a magical formula to be tacked on at the end of the prayer just to wrap it up or to ensure that our prayers will be answered. Don't just mouth those words mindlessly. You're taking the name of Jesus upon your lips, and you're asking God for something in the name of Jesus Christ. Think about what that means. You're saying to the Lord, I am asking this prayer in the holy and awesome and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And because he died, and because he rose again, to grant me access to the throne of grace. That's the only reason that I'm able to ask for anything in his name. I can't ask for anything in my name, in and of myself. I have no right to ask anything of God, only in Jesus' name, only for his sake, only because of what he has done, because of what he has been to me. That's the only reason that I can ask anything. Remember the seven sons of Sceva, in Acts 19, in Ephesus, Acts 19, verse 13, Luke tells us about some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus 
over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Sceva were amongst these Jews who were doing this. They didn't believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had no respect or reverence for the name of the Lord Jesus, but they saw Paul using this name, and they thought that they could use it like a kind of magic talisman. Uh, and so they decided to try it. And perhaps you remember what happened to them. Uh, the demon-possessed men that they were trying to exercise turned on them and beat them. God's, the name of Jesus is not some magic talisman uh, just to, to conjure up the power of Jesus. It's not to be used in a thoughtless and an empty way. It's to be used with faith. So let's ask ourselves, do I take God's name in vain as I come to worship? Am I worshiping him carelessly or am I genuinely thinking hard, engaging my brain and my emotions, every part of me? Am I saying like the psalmist, uh, be stirred up my soul, let all that is within me bless your holy name. That's the, that's the way we're meant to come to the Lord's worship. How do we take God's name in vain? By swearing, by mocking God, and by careless worship. Then a second question, much more briefly. Why must we not take God's name in vain? Why must we not take God's name in vain? I mentioned last week uh, that the larger catechism gives us some very helpful principles and guidelines for interpreting the commandments, and one of them is that we should pay close attention to the reasons that are annexed to some of them. Not all the commandments have reasons annexed, and so when they do, we should pay close attention to them. We should listen extra hard. And the reason that is given here in the third commandment is very stark and solemn, isn't it? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He will not acquit anyone who does this. The guilty will not escape. So God, in this reason, he is reinforcing the seriousness of this commandment. I don't know where you would put this commandment if you were ranking them on a scale. Uh, but God obviously takes this very, very seriously because he adds this reason. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Maybe we think that taking God's name in vain is not all that bad. It's not that big a deal. It would be far worse to go out and murder someone, for example. It would be far more serious to steal from someone or to commit adultery. But God warns us not to think that way. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. No one will escape. In the Old Testament, blasphemy was a capital crime. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That blasphemers are heaping up judgment against themselves. Every single, oh God, every single Jesus Christ 
even though they hardly know that they're saying it, even though it matters not one iota to them, they're storing up wrath and judgment upon themselves for the future. But as we've seen, we're all guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. And perhaps we've done it already in this service this morning. And the commandment says that the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his holy name in vain. And you and I are guilty. So thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's our only hope. That's the solution, isn't it, to our guilt. Jesus Christ died in the place of blasphemers. He died to take the punishment of those who abused God's name. On the cross, God treated his Son, the Holy Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, the Father treated the Son as if he had spent his whole life cursing God's name and using it in a meaningless, thoughtless way as he sang and prayed like a hypocrite in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Can you imagine that? Can you take that in? Jesus Christ, the only human being who perfectly delighted to honor God's name, who never spoke it without perfect reverence flooding through his soul, who never once, not once, did he use it improperly. He went to the cross and he took the punishment of blasphemers like you and me so that if we trust in him, we can be forgiven. And his perfect record of honoring God's name is given to you so that when God looks at you today, he doesn't see all the ways in which you have taken God's name in vain. He treats you as though you have kept this commandment as perfectly, as spotlessly, as flawlessly as Jesus Christ himself. He will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. And on the cross, God held Jesus to account. God reckoned Jesus as guilty in our place so that we can be treated as innocent. And then thirdly and lastly, how should we use God's name? We've thought a lot about how we should not use God's name in vain, but how should we use God's name? And again, the, 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 the principles that the larger catechism give us in understanding the commandments are very helpful. Uh, and one of the things that the catechism says is that the prohibitions in the commandments also include the positives. The, the prohibitions, the things that we're told not to do, also imply the things that we are to do. Eight of the Ten Commandments are framed negatively. Do not, do not, you shall not. And the reason that they're framed in that way is because that is the most liberating way to give a commandment. It, it seems odd to say that, but putting it negatively is the most liberating, positive way to give a commandment. So, for example, do not steal. 
Well, there are any number of creative, legitimate ways to accumulate property and wealth. There's no one right way. There are many, many, many ways. There's only one restriction, and that is don't steal. You're not to accumulate wealth in a dishonest way. And so this commandment too, is, it's not just negative, it's not just telling us what we're not allowed to do, it is also richly, gloriously positive. We're told that we're not to take God's name in vain, but the implication of that is that we are to use it in a meaningful way. Yes, there is a wrong way to use God's name, and we mustn't do that, but there is a right way to use God's name, and we must do that. This is where the Jews went wrong. They decided, as they heard this commandment, that God's name was so holy and so awesome that it should never be spoken. It mustn't be pronounced. If we speak it, if we use it, then we will cheapen it. And so the name of God, Yahweh, was only spoken once a year by the high priest, just by one man, on the Day of Atonement. And hyper-Orthodox Jews today still write G-D instead of God. Uh, they speak of uh, the name, uh, Hashem. That's how they refer to God. They don't talk about God. They talk about the name. They won't use God's name. And the spirit of that, I suppose, is commendable enough this reverence for God's name, but the application of it is just wrong. Because God revealed his name to us so that we would be able to use it, so that we would know it, so that we would call upon it in worship and prayer. He wants us to be on first name terms with him. I don't know if any of you watch uh, the West Wing, but uh, there is an episode in the West Wing, it's a, an American drama about uh, the president, and there is an episode in that where the first lady has written a check to uh, a poor, struggling single mother. And this poor woman is so overwhelmed, uh, so honored at having received a check from the first lady of the United States that she frames it rather than cashes it. And that's a lovely sentiment, isn't it? And perfectly understandable. But it was given to be used. It's no good inside a glass frame up on the wall. That's not going to feed her children. There's going to be no benefit. There's going to be no blessing from just looking at it on the wall. It's meant to be put in the bank, and the money is meant to be used to feed her family. And maybe that's a little bit like what the Jews did with God's name. It's as if they framed it, put it in a museum, in a glass case. It's not to be touched. It's not to be used. It's too holy to be used. But that's not the case at all. God's name, yes, it's holy, it's awesome, it's powerful, it's precious, but it's not meant to stop us using it. Just because something can be abused doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it properly. We're meant to use the name of God. Certainly there are sins that we can fall into, but we're meant to use it as God intends it to be used. We're meant to use his name in worship. 
We're meant to think about God's name. We're meant to sing His name. We're meant to pray to Him. We're meant to think and praise Him for all that He has revealed Himself to be in His name. And we're meant to use His name in witness. We're meant to go out from this place and talk about the Lord. We're meant to tell people about Him. We're meant to speak much about Him to our non-Christian friends who are perishing. Because there is no other name given among men by which we can be saved. In fact, never mind speaking about God's name out there in the world. How much do we speak of his name amongst ourselves after the service? How much are we using his name as we talk to one another? Perhaps we'll talk about any other name except the name of the Lord God. We're meant to show the character of God as we carry his name in ourselves out into the world so that instead of causing his name to be blasphemed, people will praise his name because of us. What do you talk about? Think of all the things that we spend so much time talking about. Think about the names that we spend so long talking about. The names of sporting heroes the names of our favorite singers and authors and actors, the names of politicians, perhaps, the names of our friends. Think of all the topics, even the controversies that excite us and that we spend so much time discussing and talking about and posting about on social media. Compare it to how much time we spend talking about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How much do we talk about our God? His name forever will endure. Last like the sun it shall. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we worship you and we praise your name for all that you have revealed yourself to be. We praise you for every word of Scripture that speaks of you. We praise you for this created universe that reveals yourself to us. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the incarnate Word. We thank you for how he shows us perfectly all that you are. Our Father, we pray that you will forgive us that we do not honor your name as we should. We pray that you will forgive us for how we may have broken this commandment even in our service here this morning. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for our substitute. We thank you that he came and honored your name that he revered it perfectly, that he kept this commandment and every commandment because we cannot. We thank you that he was prepared to go to the cross and to die to take the punishment for every breaking of this commandment and every other commandment. We thank you that when you look at us who are in Christ today, you do not see our guilt and our sin and our failure, but you see the perfect obedience and righteousness of your Son. And having been saved 
Lord God, having been delivered, we pray that you will help us to walk more and more in line with your commandments. Help us, Lord, to run in the way of your commandments, to delight in your precepts. Help us by your Holy Spirit to delight in your name and to honor it in our words and in our lives. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.